And because men must not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord, let's all open up to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That will be found in the black hardcover Bible in front of your seats on page 1037. That's 1037. Please follow along as I read. Hear then the word of the Lord. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. This is a word of the Lord. Thank Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you might edify the body as we um, read your word, hear the word of God being preached. We ask that you would lead us to maintain the unity of the Spirit so that we might live worthy of our calling, calling from death to life, from darkness into light. In Christ's name, amen. What does a worthy or a meaningful life look like? What does a worthy or meaningful life look like for you? I guess it really depends on who the judge is. But let's say you're the judge of your own life, and you get to judge what worthiness or meaningful life might look like. So what will a meaningful life look like for you? Is it leaving a legacy behind? Living for the right cause? Maybe fighting for pro-life? fighting for animals' rights, or fighting for women's rights. Or maybe meaningful life means leaving a large sum of money for your future generations. That's why you work hard. Or is it to be healthy as long as you are here on earth? Maybe getting that next promotion or making a name for yourself. Maybe you're single, and maybe meaningful life might be getting married and having kids. Or maybe you are married and you have kids, and meaningful life sounds like getting the kids out of your house, healthy and sound. Whatever the case is, I think we all want to live a meaningful and worthy life. And as Christians, we also ought to think about this carefully. We ought to aspire to live a meaningful or worthy lives. As we look closely at the text today, God gives us a clear idea as to what it means to live worthily and how to live worthily. 
Here's the main goal of today's text. Maintain the unity of the Spirit so that you live worthy of your calling. That's the main goal of today's text. Maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit so that you live worthy of your calling. Now the question is, how do we do that? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit so that we live worthy of our calling? Three means by which you can maintain the unity of the Spirit. First, you can maintain the unity of the Spirit so that you live worthy of your calling by walking in certain character. That's verse 2a. So by walking in certain character, that's the first how. The second how is by putting up with one another in love. By putting up with one another in love. That's verse 2b. And third and lastly, by remembering what unites us. Verses 3 through 6. By remembering what unites us. So main goal, maintain the unity of the Spirit so that you live worthy of your calling by, first, walking in certain character. Second, by putting up with one another. By th- uh, third, by remembering what unites us. So, when we look at verse 1, Apostle Paul lays out his exhortation. What does he say? Look with me again to verse 1. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. This is the main exhortation coming from Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 6. And you might be wondering, why isn't that the main goal of today's text? To live worthy of your calling. Well, it's because the main exhortation found in verse 1 of chapter 4 is actually the main um, exhortation for chapters 4 through 6. So live worthy of your calling is actually the main exhortation for the entirety of chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 are indicatives, statements about a new reality in Christ. So Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, when we look at it, these are all statements about a new reality in Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 are imperatives, what God commands us to do in light of this new reality. In verse 1, live worthy is the main exhortations for chapters 4 through 6. To better understand this verse and passage, we need to realize how this verse and passage fits, in, um, fits into the larger context of the entire letter. So what has Paul been talking about prior to chapter 4 that leads him to start chapter 4, verse 1, with the word, therefore? When you hear the word, therefore, it's alluding to something prior. What happened before that led Apostle Paul to start with chapter 4, verse 1, with therefore? I said all these things, therefore, live worthy. I'm not sure if you've seen the video Powers of Ten. It starts with a picture of a couple having a picnic in Chicago. And the camera zooms out from that couple having a picnic in Chicago in a park. Zooms out and you see Chicago. And it zooms out further, you see United States. And it zooms out further, you see Earth. Zooms out further and you see the universe. 
And then it zooms back in. Universe, Earth, United States, Chicago, the couple, and it goes into molecular level. It's really cool to see, but that's sort of what Paul is doing here in chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 1, he starts with a cosmic view of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And he says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless. God the Father chose us, even before we were born, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless. Before even we were created, God knew us, and he chose us in Christ so that we might be holy and blameless. And then he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's chapter one. Chapter two, it zooms in, zooms in to the lives of every Christian. We share a similar story of our salvation. That is, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive with Christ. So God starts out with the cosmic view, and he zooms in further into chapter 2. Story of every believer that we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, trespasses. But he makes us alive with Christ. Chapter 2, again, in verse 11, it zooms in further into the lives of Gentiles. He zooms in further. He says, Gentiles, you once were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But Christ brought you near. Gentiles were far away, not included in ethnic Israel, in the people of God, in the category of people of God. But Gentiles are now brought in once you are far away, but Christ brought you near. Gentiles were divided against Jews because of the dividing wall of hostility. When we look at Jerusalem temple that no longer exists, there was a wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were closer to the Holy of Holies, Gentiles further away from the Holy of Holies. This wall of hostility divided Jews and Gentiles. And Jews had certain dietary laws. They couldn't eat pork. Gentiles obviously ate pork. Pork is good. Praise God for pork. Jews and Gentiles probably didn't eat at the same table. So there is this great divide between Jews and Gentiles. Even in the temple, there's a great divide. But Christ makes them one. Jews and Gentiles. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. What, what was two becomes one, a new humanity in Christ. And in chapter 3, Paul talks about, it zooms in further, Paul talks about how God has called him to preach this mystery to all men. That is, there is no longer a hostile division between Jews and Gentiles because in Christ, they're made one. And this oneness is found in where? The church. 
this oneness between Jews and Gentiles is found in the body of Christ. That is the church. And through the church, God declares his manifold wisdom. To whom? To rulers and authorities in the heaven. And this is where Paul picks up. In chapter 4, having, after having said all of that. So chapters 1 through 3, cosmic view, uh, story of salvation for all believers, Jews and Gentiles, division, made one. And then God uses the church to display his manful wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 starts, Therefore I. Now, Verse 1, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling. Now, when you think about the word calling, what typically comes to your mind? In Christian context, when you use the word call, you're, you've probably heard calling into certain vocation. I was called to the pastorate. I was called as a pharmacist. I was, a, I was called as an electrician. I was called as... X, Y, and Z, into companies X, Y, and Z. But in the scriptures, whenever the word calling is used, it's typically salvific. God calls us out of darkness into light, from death to life. From our own way of thinking, from our former way of life, to new life in Christ. So calling is typically salvific. So in other words... Apostle Paul is commanding us to live lives worthy of our salvation. He says, therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live lives worthy of your salvation. Live like you have been saved. Now, let's unpack the word worthy. What does it mean to live worthy of your calling? Um, one of my all-time favorite movies were war movies, is Saving Private Ryan. Who's seen it before? Good amount of numbers. Now, I hope you've seen it because I'm going to spoil it just a little bit. <laughs> but it came out in the 90s, so if you haven't watched it, that's your fault and not mine. The setting is during World War II in Europe. Captain Miller assembles a squad to complete an offshoot mission. What is the mission? To retrieve someone named Private Ryan. Why is he retrieving Private Ryan? Because government told him to retrieve him. Why? Because Private Ryan had three older brothers, but they all died in the war. So Captain Miller assembles a squad, eight men, including himself, on an offshoot mission to save Private Ryan, hence the fourth, the name, Saving Private Ryan. Now, at the end of the movie, out of eight men in the squad, only two men survive, excluding Captain Miller. And Captain Miller, in his dying breath, utters these famous words. As he's dying, he motions Private Ryan to come near him so that he can whisper his last words in his dying breath. He says, quote, earn this, earn it. What was Captain Miller saying to Private Ryan? Now remember, six men had died to retrieve Private Ryan from dying. So he's saying, live your life to the fullest. Don't waste the lives that, was, that were dedicated in saving yours. 
Private Ryan was to enjoy and to live his life to the fullest. At the beginning and at the end of the movie, an elderly man is found walking in front of his family. His wife, his grown-up kids, all his grandchildren are walking behind him. And as the camera moves, the audience sees that the elderly man and his family are walking into a cemetery. There are thousands and thousands of white cross headstones. The elderly man walks as if he knows where he's walking to. And he stops at a particular white cross headstone and collapses in front of it, crying. This is Private Ryan, years down the road, in front of Captain Miller's tomb. He brought all his family, his legacy, and evidence that he has lived his life to full. He has lived a worthy life. Clearly, Apostle Paul isn't saying that we can earn our worthiness of our calling. God has called Christians from darkness into light, but we can't earn our salvation. That's clear. We can't earn our worthiness. The Christian life is never about earning our salvation. We're we're not trying to increase our worthiness so that God might not be ashamed of saving us. No, we are demonstrating the worthiness of the call. Our call, that is, from death to life. The call from being enemies to sonship, to being sons and daughters in Christ. We're we're demonstrating that worth. Salvation is a gift from the Lord. We can never repay God for the gift of salvation. Yet, those who have been gifted with salvation must live in such a way that are worthy of their salvation. And life worthy of our calling is that of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. This entire passage is about unity of the local church. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. When God calls you and me to himself and saves us, we are his and he is ours. Is that true? But when he calls you to himself, he never calls you into a private relationship with him only. He always calls us into a life of community with other saints. So, life worthy of our salvation is closely, closely tied with your participation in the unity of the church. So how can you maintain the unity of the Spirit so that you live worthy of your calling? Three ways. The first way is by walking in certain character. You can maintain the unity of the Spirit by walking in certain character. Verse 2 says, live worthy of your calling you have received. Verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience. The three nouns are all character-related nouns. Think about the words, humility, gentleness, and patience. They're all relational in nature. Humility is relational, patience is relational, gentleness is relational. Think about the hidden conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Um, It's sort of like Captain America and Iron Man during Civil War. Sorry, I love movies. I keep bringing up movies. (laughs) You can probably tell. I movies. I love movies, and I keep watching them. Um, So in Captain America Civil War, there's a divide between Captain America and uh, 
Iron Man. So they form and assemble two teams, Team Iron Man and Team Captain America. There's a divide that can't be undone. In the same way, Jews and Gentiles have this dividing wall. There's a tension between them, hidden conflicts and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Not, all, not only were they different from each other, but um, there was a historical presence that drifted them apart. And that could have been true, most likely true, in Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But they're both called to have humility, gentleness, and patience. Two completely different groups to walk in certain character that will lead them to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's briefly look at the word carefully, humility. What does humility look like? Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me, verses 3 and 4. does humility look like? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant, more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility counts others more significant than ourselves. They look to the interests of others. When Christ saved us, we are people who, by the grace of God, have recognized the ugliness of our sin and have turned away from even our goodness and religiosity, knowing that they are filthy rags before a holy God. Think carefully about our salvation. Think about the life that you and I used to live before we were saved. And then think about how God saved us through Christ. We are lowly and meek in our spirits because we have recognized our sinfulness in light of God's holiness. Are you looking to the needs of other brothers and sisters in our church or in your churches? Recognizing your own needs is not bad nor sinful. Yet, it might be sinful if you, fail to look and, if you fail to look around and strive to see the needs of the body, to recognize the needs of the body, you must be observant and mindful. Look around and listen carefully and thoughtfully to look to the interests of others, counting others more significant than yourselves. And on the other hand, on the flip side of the coin, you might need to think about willingness to be helped as well. We love the idea of helping, yet sometimes, if you're like me, we hate the idea of being helped because it reveals our weakness. Yet, humility is both sides, helping and being helped, being open to Helping and being helped. Being corrected and correcting. We're open to both. Because of our salvation. Now let's consider the word gentleness. It can be associated with the word meekness. 
when we begin to build meaningful relationships with other members of the church, we tend to become harsher than charitable. Think about your relationship with your friends. When you first met them, you're all nice, you're all kind, your language is a little different, your demeanor is a little different. For some, maybe not. Yet, when you get closer with that person and your real self comes out, your words become a little harsher. A crude joke here and there. So when we're beginning to build meaningful relationships with other members of the church, we can become harsher than, rather than being charitable. Speaking the truth to other members of the church is crucially important right? Amen to that, right? Speaking the truth to other members is crucially important. Yet, speaking the truth without love can happen often. Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, unpacked it this way, quote, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Close quote. So when we speak the truth without love, we're being harsh, and other people can't really hear us because we're not speaking in love. Their ears are closed. But when we're simply loving, or the emotion of love, Without truth, it's simply sentimentality. I think that's well said. Gentleness is a needed quality and one of the fruits of the Spirit that we ought to walk in. It is, the, it is speaking the truth in love. Um, if you are married or if you have kids or even with parents, speaking the truth in love is extremely difficult. But as we feel that, the difficulty of speaking the truth in love and being gentle, God commands us all the more to be gentle with those who are closest to us, with those whom we have covenanted together. Now, let's be honest. We won't be able to walk in this character perfectly. Yet the main application of this is the posture of humility and posture of gentleness. Now, next, consider the word patience. When do we need patience? All the time, yes, all the time. We need patience when we become provoked by something. If you guys know me, um, I have two kids, Ezra and Isaiah. You've probably heard them over and over, crying or whining, which is fine. Um, Yet, my second son, which is Isaiah, uh, hates car rides. Typically, kids or infants like car rides, but my kids hate it. Both Ezra and Isaiah, but Isaiah right now in this season, he hates it. So every time we put him in the car seat, he pouts. He warms up to cry, and then he screams. I'm not sure about you, but I hate being screamed in my ears for at least 30 minutes because it takes me 30 minutes to come over here. That provokes me to sometimes sinful anger, and I repent. 
having little kids or even significant others teach you something about patience. Anna and I are still learning how to be patient with our kids and with each other. And doing life in the context of covenant community will require patience. When we get close enough, it will require patience. You know why? Because you're difficult. And because I'm difficult. People are different. You can be draining. I can be draining. It can be provoking. Yet, God tells us, just as He has been patient with us, we are also to be patient with one another. That's how we maintain the unity of the Spirit. One of the ways, even as other people provoke us, that we will be patient. Now, like I said, the main application of this is the posture of humility, gentleness, and and patience as we relate to other saints in the body. In other words, we are to walk in humility, gentleness, and patience in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So there's the first how by walking in certain character, relational character. Secondly, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit by putting up with one another in love. Now, when you look at verse 2b in um, Christian Standard Bible, it says making, or sorry, bearing with one another in love, right? Uh, But when we look at the original language, it might be better translation to say putting up with one another. Putting up with one another in love. So second way is to main second way to maintain the unity of the spirit is to put up with one another. It's a further explanation of what must be taking place in a church. Now, I've written uh, I'm not sure if it's countless many letters, but at least 30. I've been married with my wife for 5 years. 30 letters, maybe. Give or take 5 or 5. But every time I write, I always repeat a phrase. That is, babe, thanks for putting up with me. She sees, my wife, my significant other, sees my flaws the best because she lives with me. My parents sees my flaws. So Mother's Day and Father's Day, I might say, Mom, Dad, thanks for putting up with me. I know how difficult I can be. I know how stubborn I can be. I know how rude or disrespectful I can be. So thanks for putting up with me. The art of putting up with one another is present in any close relationships. If you're single in this room, ask married couples. If you're married, you probably feel it. People who are different mingling together might become difficult. Now, as I was reading through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I was thinking, what might, what might I not want to obey in my flesh? As I look at the text, in my flesh... What do I not want to obey in my flesh? Two things. 
with patience and putting up with one another. I don't want to put up with other people who are difficult. I don't want to be patient. Yet, God calls me to. God calls us to. And it's good, and it's for my joy. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather hide. I'd rather hide from those who might require my patience. That's my sinful strategy. To hide in my cave, to become passive, and not to speak with people who might require me to be patient and put up with that person. But what's implied in verses 2 and 3 is being close to the point where I need to put up, where I need to be patient. If I'm just talking with you one day out of the week, surface level talk, and we barely get to talk, I don't have much chance to feel the irritation, annoyance, frustration. Brothers and sisters, in order for us to faithfully obey this text, we ought to really mingle with each other. So BBC, this week I charge you to get in touch with another member whom you typically don't or haven't to read the Bible together. Share your testimonies, your struggles, and praises. Pressure yourself to feel the difference. Put yourself against the wall to feel the difference that, you might, that might require your patience, that might require endurance, that might require gentleness, humility, that might require you putting up with that person in love. Don't fear the awkward moments when there is perhaps nothing to talk about. Don't be driven by how energy draining that person might be. Pressure yourself to be in a situation where you can feel the need to put up with one another in love, to display God and His love and His glory. Now, this naturally leads us to the third and last means by which we can maintain the unity of the Spirit. By remembering what unites us. So to recap, you can maintain the unity of the Spirit, first, by walking in certain character, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Second, by putting up with one another in love. And third, lastly, by remembering what unites us. Look to verse 3. Verse 3 says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. What is the unity of the Spirit? That's a question, isn't it? That's a valid question. When Apostle Paul writes, keep the unity of the Spirit, we need to understand unity of the Spirit, right? So what is it? When you were saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, what did you receive? Or better question, who did you receive? Yes, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us. 
you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 14, 14 through 17. You can turn there if you'd like. That's Romans, 8 chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. It says, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. The Holy Spirit according to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, is described as the spirit of adoption. Through the Holy Spirit, we call our God what? Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit who resides in or indwells all true believers unites them or us together. We have been adopted into the family of God through the shed blood of Christ. Thus, we have been united. Paul then also adds that we must maintain the unity of the Spirit through the what? The bond of peace, correct? The bond of peace. What is the bond of peace? The bond of peace is the peace that bonds believers together. No, duh, right? The bond of peace is the peace that bonds believers together. The peace that God brought through life, death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the peace that bonds us together. So it's brought to us through Christ. Friends, if you are visiting us this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have this peace. Whether you feel like you're at peace or not, I assure you that you don't have it because this peace has only been made available for believers, for Christians. This doesn't mean that we don't love you. And this doesn't mean that you're not welcomed here. You're always welcomed here. Yet, don't leave this place without knowing that you're not at peace with God because of your sins. God in His great greatness, power, and glory has made everything in the beginning. In the beginning, everything was good and at peace as God created them to be. Mankind were at peace with God. But man rebels against God and his instructions. Thus, all men have become alienated and separated from God, no longer at peace with God due to their sin, due to our sin. This includes you, me, and everyone in this room. We were no longer at peace with God because of our sins. And God in His infinite wisdom and great love sent Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, to live the perfect and sinless life that we couldn't measure up to live, only to die on the cross and only to be raised for our justification. He died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God, for sinners who would repent and turn to trust in Christ for forgiveness. And this is the good news. 
the gospel, the greatest news, that whoever repents, which means to turn away from your former way of life, you being the Lord of your life, and turning to Christ for forgiveness, trusting Him, and following Him. Faith in Jesus as Lord, then you will be reconciled to God, at peace with God, which means you will be forgiven. That's the greatest news. And God is calling you today to turn away from your way of life, you being the Lord of your own life, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And Christians in this room, we do have this peace with God because of Christ's atoning sacrifice our rep- and our repentance and faith. And this peace is what bonds us together. We are gospel people or gospel citizens. We have been united through the gospel. The gospel is at the center, not our age group, not our seasons of life, not the color of our skin, not our own interests or ambitions. What unites us? If you know a little bit about Koreans, we travel in wolf packs. We're always gathering other, with other Koreans. I'm a Korean, obviously, you can tell. No, maybe not. Um, anyways, Koreans always travel in like a wolf pack, gathering together. Why? Because we're comfortable with each other. We know our culture. We know our lingo. Yet, when we gather together as a church, we're not gathering t- together because we look alike. We're not gathering together because we're in similar seasons of life or age, or interests, or ambitions, or our goals, or maybe goals. We gather around the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what is a practical way to put this into action? If we're gathered around not by our color of skin, our interests, our ambitions, What is a practical step that we can take? BBC, this week, I encourage at least one member to encourage at least one member with the gospel, which means reminding them or recalling a certain element of the gospel. So think about one person. It might be prudent for you to think about one person right now, a member of our church, and encourage. think think about encouraging them with the gospel, so gospelize them. And write that down in your notebook if you're taking notes. Think about that one person. And gospelize that person particularly this week. Now let's go ahead and look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. In the original language, which is Greek, the first two words of the verses, verse 4, do not exist. There's no such thing as there is. It's just, it starts by saying, one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, etc. Notice how many ones there are. The word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God, the Father of all. Paul is trying to emphasize what unites us. And it is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. How they're united, we are to be united. And through them, God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, we are united together. The Trinitarian reality of our God, the one God in three persons, majestically unites all His set-apart ones to become one body, demolishing the wall of division, of hostility that used to separate us. No longer are we united by something other than the gospel, other than our God in three persons. And you can clearly see that, right? One Spirit, one Lord, and one God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we have been graciously saved by our God. Praise be to God for our salvation. Now we ought to live like we have been saved by maintaining the unity of the Spirit, by walking in certain character, by putting up with one another, by remembering what unites us. Yet, if we're honest, we haven't been humble. We haven't been gentle. We haven't been patient. We haven't put up with one another in love. Rather, we went into our caves to hide from relational difficulties. When we felt impatient, not gentle, not humble, we either lashed out or passively withdrew or grumbled in our hearts so that we would no longer feel the relational difficulty or, or tension. We failed in striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Yet, there is one who was humble, who was gentle, who was patient, who didn't shy away from relational difficulty. In fact, he attained our unity. He's the one who existed in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Being born in the likeness of men, he emptied, his, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he didn't remain in the cave. He rose again from the dead for our justification. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has freed us to be faithful members who love other members with the truth of God's word. He has freed us to be faithful members who walk in certain character, who put up with one another in love, and who remember what unites us. Now, I want to end with a quote about the church by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It comes from the book, Life Together. Quote, The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. That dismisses once and for all all every... That dismisses once and for all every clamorous 
desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. Just at this point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all, the danger of being poisoned at its root. The danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship, of confounding the natural desire of the devout heart heart for community, community with the spiritual reality of Christian brotherhood. In Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon its being clear right from the beginning. First, that the Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Second, that Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not a psychic or mental reality. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, may we not have a wishful idea of religious fellowship. And may we recognize that the church is not an ideal, but a divine reality. As we remember what unites us, as we put up with one another in love, as we walk in certain character, may we maintain the unity of the Spirit so that we may live worthy of the calling that we have received from death to life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you might lead us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You have united us in Christ. And you have sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Now may we recognize the mysterious but glorious unity that we have in Christ through the Spirit. And may we live lives worthy of our calling, meaningful lives, as we covenant with each other, as we renew our covenant, as we love each other, and even as we lo- love our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.